So hang on, when's, when's this one going out? This one is going out, let me just tell you. It will go out... Christmas. <laughs> the 4th of August. Oh, it's the Community Shield coming up, isn't it? How exciting. I've been there, won that. Oh, you've won a Community Shield. Oh, I don't you? want to talk about it. Don't want to talk about it. Let's talk about it. What? Well, Chinch, given this, yeah, as Rory says, this is uh, it's mid-July currently, but uh, don't tell yeah. anybody that. But this is this is going out the week ahead of the Community Shield, which is very much the curtain raiser. Yeah. It's a phrase used in it is, any it is other context. The tr- traditional curtain raiser to the season. No, I don't think you ever hear about a curtain raiser other than um, the Community Shield. It's not. There's no no curtain about, raisers even for anything else. Even but, pres- about over, the overture to an opera is that not the the curtain? Well, literally, raiser? but you don't call it that. <laughs> <laughs> is it not is that where it comes from curtain raiser yes yeah yes it's an opera term well no it, any any sort theater, of yeah theater term yeah. theater term with the, the, as, theater. The, as the music strikes up the curtain <laughs> is as, red. as the music strikes up and everyone regrets going to the theater remarkably uncultured you are rory for somebody who reads and considers himself just, a hipster and progressive you're remarkably uncultured just hundreds of people thinking oh yeah this is much worse than the cinema the curtain goes up and where's harry styles you consider yourself to be the arbiter of of what culture is is no, no no i just i just don't like the theater and i just don't the like the theater, theater. Well, wrestling is theater wrestling is is um is all performance art i don't like wrestling i i have a soft spot for wrestling owing to to a to an affiliation from when i was younger i don't i have you'd be surprised at how little wrestling i watch they've all got real names now it's rubbish the i want them with weird names that and you know where they're pretending to be different things rather than just i'm just a guy who wants to to win a fight if i want if i want to see that i'll go out in a provincial british town on a friday night the um but no i just i just think that i just think the theater's rubbish do you think there's there's a parallel universe where a, a west end theater going regular rory smith is utterly sneering of anybody who sits down and reads books on a regular basis. No, but so this is the thing, right? So people quite often, if you literature, if you if Just you go say to the theatre, if you meet, I deal with music. Down. If you meet a theatre, yeah. why write it down when you can sing it? Did Chinch, <laughs> Chinch, Chinch connected with his wife. Their dating, their courtship was spent at West End theatres with yes. Nicky, yes. and then hotels yes. afterwards, and they. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we we mainly made sweet love in our own homes, but yeah, we we, we did. Yeah, we did try that occasionally. Yeah. If you Travel meet lodge, a, excellent beds. If you meet a theatre person who doesn't like football, they will tell you, "Oh, I don't really like football." And you're meant to just be like, "All right, well, fine, that's great." Because football is the dominant cultural form. You're you're meant to be like, "Oh, that's fair enough." You're not, you, you don't. It's not compulsory. You don't have to like football. If you yeah, if you say you don't like the theatre, everyone's like, "Oh, well, I mean, that's." Well, that's a bit much, Sweeping. isn't it? You don't like the theatre. Just don't like the theatre. It's fine. I don't. I just. It's not a problem. I understand that other people do. I just don't want to go. I'd rather go to the cinema. Thank but you very as, much. As one, as one particularly talented but non-hardworking uh, music uh, degree student of the late 1990s, wrote in a weighty 10,000-word tome for what was uh, what was called the Solo Project, uh, your dissertation in your final year, that music and sport, or to this, uh, the, the extension for this conversation, theatre, the arts and sport are two twins separated at birth, which is in by no means a pompous 
uh, way of looking at things. But the two industries from within, I can tell you, are incredibly aligned, very similar, full of dickheads, basically. And um, and it's remarkable how, for example, school school age children are not able to do both because they both sit in an extracurricular way that clashes. And even though you could say that there are elements of performance and dedication to your to your art or to practicing your skills that are very, 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 very similar society through the lens of the prism of Rory Smith in this example, society will not consider that you can like both sport and the arts. Oh no, I'm not saying that you can't. I'm just saying that you shouldn't. I shuffle, <laughs> I shuffle my papers there. Rory, Rory, prefer, Rory prefers his fold down chairs to be molded, pla- molded plastic rather than musty cushioned velvet. I just don't see why you should go and sit in a room and watch people pretend without pitch and mix. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth. This beat is automatic, supersonic, hypnotic, funky fresh. Rory Smith, go shorty. It's your birthday. We can party like it's your birthday. And Andy Hinchcliffe, it's Britney, bitch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> opening lines to songs that i think we all know and appreciate oh, um chinch the food is the dessert which uh, is uh, forming uh, one course of our three course extravaganza virtually provided by nikki hinchcliffe and brought to us via your dulcet tones rolling off your tongue like yeah. something a little bit sweaty yeah we've had the we've had the scallops to start we've had the chicken for main course now we're on to a piping hot pear plum and apple crumble a seeded crumble pumpkin sesame and sunflower seeds dusted with toasted flaked almonds and served with lashings of madagascan vanilla custard shivers chinch (laughs) shivers and uh, the football is chinch you know what we're talking about today Yes, a whole week ago, and yet you still remember. Very impressive that uh, you would recall the, the third part of our series. We are talking about the EPL in a series about PLE. It is part three of our Premier League exceptionalism mini-series. Uh, we've spoken in parts one and two about managers, players, finances, transfers, while today it's time for Chinch to get his tactics board out and draw us virtual patterns with magnetic discs. Does the Premier League need to be the centre of tactical innovation to be considered exceptional in the one of many definitions of that word that we've used over the course of the last two weeks exceptional or is it satisfied with scouting the evolution from elsewhere and then bringing it in as they would a player for example and then to finish we will allow ourselves to be literal for just a moment and talk about what in the premier league truly is exceptional if we get time we might be complaining for too long because given that we spend a lot of time both watching and talking about it perhaps we should actually admit there is quite a lot to recommend it such as i don't know if you actually got your tactics board um, um probably no, the... I don't. I, I did have it. It got dented. A, a dent, didn't li- but didn't lose as, lose as much value as, as Rory's car. <laughs> but Which it, commentator um... did you hit over the head with it? <laughs> um, it like a chair in wrestling. Spoiled for choice. Yeah, oh, don't mention wrestling again, please. One of those so... chairs that are made of balsa wood. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, that's yeah, nasty. That's, that's hit him with that hurt, chair. That's it? really going to hurt him. I've been listening to a fascinating pod, <laughs> podcast on on the history of wrestling, not on wrestling itself. That I would recommend Business Wars uh, with David Brown. It's an American podcast, and it, it, mainly it's good because of the way he talks, which I, I can't really do an impression of, but is is genuinely amazing. That man could make me. I would invade a country for that man. I really would. 
Like a country I quite liked. I'd invade Italy for that man. Is that what you're listening to now? Is that what you've got on your headphones? Are we coming through the speakers? On I don't know. So this here is, is you idiots, and then this here is something I, I actually have to do and want to listen to. <laughs> All right, that's good. Well, let's keep, keep his attention for at least the next 30 minutes, and then we, can, just, uh, then we can say goodbye. <laughs> this, is, this is quite a simple one, because the Premier League isn't the centre of tactical innovation. It is the opposite. It is the so, place w- where tactics once ev- innovated, once involved what's the word is there a word evolved evolved in it may be evolved that probably do once <laughs> once kind of de- tactics are developed elsewhere and then once they're kind of proven successful or, or accepted as kind of best practice they come to the premier league they're, the premier league the premier league success is a is a story of importation mm. of of players of managers and of ideas and that is how the premier league uh, has worked for the last um and they're obviously, obviously they're all related the, the, the ideas effectively come with the managers but that's how the Premier League has worked. So if you think about Jurgen Klopp as the kind of high priest of the German pressing game, he refines his approach to tactics in the Bundesliga and then brings it to England and that then develops, that is added into the kind of melting pot mix of, of tactics in the Premier League. Same with Guardiola. He refined his ideas in Spain and Germany and then comes to England, adapts them slightly for the circumstances, no question, but the basic principles remain the same. Um, same with Bielsa or, or whoever. These are all ideas that are forged elsewhere and then imported once they are, I'm not even going to say once they're fully formed, but once they're kind of established, really. They're, they're, they're developed and established elsewhere and then they're imported into Premier League at some point by a process that isn't particularly linear, that isn't particularly logical. It's not like they're, they're waiting for the... It's not like someone sitting in, in kind of a club HQ and thinking, right, well, this is this German pressing thing is interesting, but let's just see how it does in this scenario. And then once it's passed that test, tick, we can bring it in. It's just like, well, he's good, let's get him. And the Premier League just becomes this sort of melange of different ideas and different styles. And it kind of blends everything together and you get a kind of updated Premier League style. So it's just as industrious and energetic and, and hard running as ever, but it's a bit more targeted because, you know, the, the, the idea of pressing has come in. So it's 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 kind of much more pointed at specific areas and and that's how it develops everything is everything is the innovation happens everywhere else mainly i would say in germany and to an extent italy and then it's brought into the premier league at some point on the back of a manager well that really does chime with kind of what i went through as a as a player in my kind of formative years at man city and then moving on to everton playing under billy mcneil jimmy frizzell at city mel machin as well um, at Everton under Howard Kendall, who was incredibly successful, not with me, with everybody else. Uh, Colin Harvey as well. It was basically, you played 4-4-2. It was like tactics were just, oh, I don't think it was even, it wasn't even termed that. It was just basically the way football was played, had been played, is played. You didn't see any of those. You've got Billy McNeil, maybe Howard Kendall to pick out two names, Colin Harvey as well maybe, to, to say, well, hold on a minute, we might try and change this around a little bit and play a slightly different way or a different formation or a different approach it never it never happened so surely like as Roy said it's it's those coaches coming into the the Premier League with those ideas that started to change how football was played within the Premier League because that's exactly that went on for years in terms of when did I start late 80s all the way through playing with with kind of mid 90s even under under Joe Royal we had a very set way of playing that's kind of mid 90s so really it wasn't didn't seem to come from within the Premier League these changes and these tactical innovations. It came from came from the outside. So when when you started playing three at the back, who 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 do you think prompted that? Was was it Joe Royal deciding because Joe, Joe Joe did it a little bit, didn't he? He did, but I think that was that was probably because other other teams had started to do right. that as well. 
I think not, not not saying he that came then. Well, again, that's that's something I haven't really thought. I never really think that deeply about anything, to be honest. But again, yeah, I think that yeah, playing three at the back or playing a kind of a, with two holding midfielders or whatever. However, however, those che- it would have probably happened at other clubs, and maybe that was seen to be oh, okay, yeah, that could maybe not something that we'd maybe bring in ourselves and start that trend off. That that trend had been in other countries and, and brought in with maybe other coaches. Is this not a bit of a a scandal? Really, that the, the Premier League imports tactics in the way that it imports players, but without the reciprocal trickling down of its hefty finances. Are we going to start getting bills later <laughs> down the way from Serie A and the Bundesliga who've decided that uh, really... We just take, 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 Steve, don't we? Repatriation <laughs> yeah. of money in, yeah. in exchange for... For tactics is is necessary if this is the but they're but they're buy- to be continued aren't they buying the tactics because they are paying those yeah. those managers more than they are paid where they are able to develop those tactics so there's, there's an element at least of that being rewarded if you like and there's there's like but they're only get- they're paying the mani- they're paying the managers the money but that money isn't filtering down to the leagues that they have come from in the same way as it does if if they spend tens of millions of pounds on on players from those loads of leagues. Steve is not making an entirely serious point. I am. The, <laughs> Look at his face. Look at it. <laughs> the, it does, there is a trick, you know, you have to pay a release, a release fee for a manager yeah. in most cases. So it, it, the, the, there's a broader s- subject, which is that managers, given how important they are, are ridiculously undervalued. You know, mm-hmm. only a handful of managers earn anything like what players earn. That's no absurd, manager, isn't it? no manager. It's re- it's a really, really strange phenomenon that you don't. You, know, you think about how significant Pep Guardiola is, and yet Bayern Munich let his contract run down last week. Last week, early this morning, we talked about the fact that Southampton let Danny are letting Danny Inns run his contract down. Why on earth did Bayern Munich let Pep Guardiola run his contract down? What an idiotic thing to do! The, you, then that very few of them are paid anything like what what players are paid, what players are paid. And yet, you know, you turn it, and you see the, the buyout clause. Is it sort of, you know, if, if someone has to pay eight million quid for a manager, it's like this is ridiculous. What a ridiculous amount of money! But th- that's literally the person who's going to define what happens to your club. You should you, the manager should be the biggest fee of all. It's it's slightly odd that no one has actually thought. Hang on, this is this is completely. And I'm going to use the technical term here. Arse about tit. <laughs> It's totally, it's in completely yeah, it's the crazy. wrong order. It's crazy. It's nuts. Yeah. But, but there, is, there, is, there is a bit of a trickle down because, you know, you, you, a club will get a couple of million quid for the manager from a, from a team and they might then use that to reinvest in, in, um, in another manager. But ultimately you can't charge for, for ideas because partly they're collaborative and collegiate so they're not, they don't belong to one person. But also there's a degree of kind of freedom of thought and what have you you can't and there is a another interesting question which is who's and this is something that's relevant to man city actually whose intellectual property is any of this stuff because then i think the next to give you a window into what will happen when i remember about football again <laughs> i think the next then or one of the one of the most competitive areas in football in the next few years will be intellectual property and attempting to monetize your intellectual property, whether that's like an analytical model or a way of assessing players or a scouting technique or a coaching technique. So if you're a club who wants to set up soccer schools across the world, use advertising your coaching methods, basically saying, you you know, buy this this product from us and we will give you a course that enables you to, to train your, your kids like Pep Guardiola trains his Man City players. What happens when Guardiola leaves? 
Just Man City will continue to make money off Pep Guardiola's ideas, but those are his ideas. Those are his methods. Because they have a holistic approach and it goes top to bottom. At well, Man- I presume there's a bit in the contract that says, what, in the same way as every thought that I have belongs to the New York Times, I presume that applies in, in the contracts that managers sign as well. But it seems odd to me that, that in 10 years' time, when Guardiola might be in charge of Manchester United... And yet Man City will still be trading on, on, his, on, on his ideas and making money off his ideas. That strikes me as being something that is inherently quite complicated and is not, is, is not at all easy to, to disentangle. But the, the importation of ideas, the fact that ideas flow freely around the football world is, is kind of the historical truth of it. It's always been like that. But also it's how the game advances. It's really important in socconomics, which is not a book I quote particularly regularly, there is a, a very valid, but to me, a very convincing theory that success in the soccer world is to do with how close you are to the to the centre of, of 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 its kind of of its primary networks, and that those two primary networks for a long time were Europe and South America. Now it's just Western Europe. That if you're plugged into that network, you have access to the most advanced nutrition, the most advanced sports science, the most advanced analytics, all of that stuff and the most advanced tactics, and you have to be plugged in. You can make an argument that for a long time what held England back was not being properly plugged into that network. Now England is the... It's not the heart of it because it doesn't send, as Steve says, it doesn't send anything back, but it is the end point of that network. It is the ultimate conclusion to all of those ideas. Eventually, the best ones sweep to England. But do those ideas, even though they don't necessarily trickle down, the, the value to that manager of those ideas, given the conversation that you just started about the, the intellectual property, the, the value to that manager is enough to secure him based on, and we spoke in the first episode of this three-part series about the, the name ID being an insurance or insurance against failure or insurance against not getting you good jobs, but also a prospect of getting you a job because of it. The, the tactics ID that a manager has can also do the same thing. So they, having built up this reputation for having a style, a philosophy of football, will allow them to forever, potentially, get jobs because they bring to that club the idea. So there is there is a value to that manager throughout his career, having got the reputation for being a manager with a certain set of tactics. Uh, Although, interestingly, is it not that manager's skill in implementing their ideas which makes them such an asset? Because Marcelo Bielsa has numerous disciples of his methods, but not all have been successful in, in following that path. We know some of the big names, but I'm, I'm sure there are many others who haven't been able to implement that philosophy to anything like the same degree of success. And in turn, you look at someone like Mikel Arteta, who has not had the immediate impact at Arsenal that many people expected he would do from having worked alongside Pep Guardiola. So although they, the intellectual property of those ideas is, is an interesting concept, the person who, who first instills them clearly retains some kind of power over them because it's, it's not necessarily something that can be transformed on to the next person who has their job or indeed to people who, who work alongside them, who you would suspect would be best placed to, to take those, those ideas and develop them elsewhere. I think the ideas themselves only have a certain value. The, the, the difference between Arteta and Guardiola, I guess, is, is in who's delivering the ideas mm. that, and probably who they're delivering them to, to be perfectly honest. The, I think there is a sense that you can read that What's happened to Arteta at Arsenal? In admittedly a relatively short period of time, it might all be complete. They might win the lead this year, although 
it's unlikely. Uh, the you can read it either as proof that what really matters is not that you have the idea. If you assume that the ideas are basically the same, that either the different the, the thing the, the thing that differentiates one from the other is that is the power and the aura of Guardiola delivering those ideas as opposed to Arteta, or that the ideas only work when you have a squad of the very best footballers on the planet rather than one that includes Callum Chambers. Which, which is exactly what Pep Guardiola talks about a lot. He realises that he is lucky to have those players at his disposal. I mean, if he was to sign Callum Chambers, obviously he'd have an opportunity to, uh, to, to try and bridge that gap. But Chinch, it, it, it proves the point that you were making. So if everybody played 4-4-2, mm. the more successful teams playing 4-4-2... If you if you assume that they're all of relative quality in terms of footballers, mm-hmm. and, and obviously if you were playing for them, they were better. Of course. But, but Howard Kendall, for example, playing four four two as opposed to Mel Machin playing four four two, is because of the power of Howard Kendall to deliver those messages. Now I appreciate a lot of his delivery was not tactics based; it was personality based and man management based. Yes. But still, it's the same principle applies because Pep Guardiola he. He might be able to write a blueprint of exactly how he uh, trains footballers and he could give that to somebody and they could try and deliver exactly the same words, exactly the same drills, exactly the same tactics. But it's because the power of the personality of Pep Guardiola makes it extra special. And that's, that's the same thing that you could apply to 80s, 90s, early 2000s football. Everybody's playing the same system, but it's the power of the delivery of those instructions that sometimes separates you out. That. Working under Howard Kendall, there weren't any. I think Howard obviously was a product of, of, of the team, the great team that he created, signing great players who basically just went and played. It was always going to be four four two. But if you've got Trevor Stephen in your team, you've got Andy Gray, um, you've got Peter Reed. From what I could gather of that time, the the team didn't take an awful lot of coaching they just signed very good players in in the right positions and then working with Howard later on when players did need to be molded and to be told how to play because football had changed players had changed how we just tended to do the same pre-season the same training sessions there was no passing on of tactical knowledge about playing as right back playing as a left winger this is what we need from you for the team that was never Howard's way that's a good TV programme. <laughs> Howard's Way was a great TV <laughs> Howard's Way was basically, yes, his personality was very powerful and players did, did really respond to the way that he, he managed them. But there, 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 was, there was no tactical passing on of information because that's, that's not what, again, he had probably grown up with. That was not his style of manage, management and he'd had success not having to do that. So the, the coaches like with, with Ron and with maybe Joe Royal, they had an adaptability which to, to stay within the game, they needed to be able to realise that the game had changed, how they needed to conduct themselves needed to change. They had strong personalities, yes, and that had enabled them to be successful for a period of time. But then you do have to be able, as years go by and players change, that you have to change the way that you manage those players. And then again, tactics play a huge part in that because players need direction they need to understand exactly when teams can can play two or three different ways where we didn't used to do in the past it was pretty obvious you played left back right wing that was it it was pretty set you you shouldn't need coaching and that happened under really Colin Harvey as well I didn't really have any coaching under and Colin Harvey and he was considered a fantastic coach but I I had virtually no I was signed as a left back and and played a few games so you just slot into a team and, and go play left back and again, I was, I was 21, 22, so you're still learning, so you need to be coached. And that's, I think, the really good coaches experience one change with the times. 
and some didn't. Joe Rawls is a great example of that. You get a coach in Willie Donerkey who is able to, to carry that out for you on the training pitch and you become the manager and you talk to the players and kind of inspire them. But the, the coaches needed to, to adapt the way that they did it. And I, I presume a lot of them were looking at other coaches coming in from the, from the continent and seeing how they were going about things on the pitch. I know Willie Donerkey, he used to travel around Europe picking up all these ideas about how the Italian teams trained, how the Germans... So he was, again, soaking all this information up, taking it back to the Premier League and to the clubs that he worked with and passing that on. So he was, again, way ahead of the game in terms of realising what needed to be done to improve players because players had changed over the decade before. They'd changed enormously. It's interesting. I want the, the, the mention of three at the back, which was a... A very sort of mid '90s phenomenon initially. I don't think anyone had really played that way in England ever before. I do wonder how that spread. I mean, I suppose the German teams had always played with a sweeper and two centre halves, hadn't they? Andy Bremer was a left wing back in 1990. So I wonder. I think to an extent, in the in the early days of Chinch's career, I think the way that ideas spread was to an extent probably from World Cups. Mm. And European Championships, and it was it was on the it was on the international stage. That's been another major shift. Is that is international that, football is now so totally been, separate? Just, just to interrupt, I was looking through a list of of the coaches. You know, from the early days of the Premier League, say ninety two. Just eight names have come up here: George Graham, Ron Atkinson, Kenny Daglish, Ian Porterfield, Bobby Gould, Steve Coppel, Howard Kendall, John Lyle. So again, there there isn't again the influx of foreign coaches came in. After that time, didn't it really? So again, you wouldn't Joseph say any of these Vengos guys came after that, didn't you? Yeah, no, 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 you wouldn't no. say any of these guys are kind of real innovators, and, and any of them spring out and say, "Well, they changed the face of football within the Premier in their time within the Premier League." Again, it was pretty established. Th- these were the guys, and they played a certain way. They all seemed to play a certain way, and then it started to adapt. But it didn't seem to come from maybe within, say, that list of people. There are more clearly, but it didn't seem to come from within. It was external. Well, changes Ven- that were made. Vendloss was 1990 at Villa. Ah, was he and, that early? I didn't realise. But, but Vendloss was more of a kind of, he was more of a fitness guy, basically. He was a, he was a kind of, he wasn't a tactician, I don't think. It was more to do with he will get the players to be properly fit. No, it was just the first, wasn't he the first, first British? It depends how you count Danny Bagara, but yes. Right. Um, does Danny Bagara was half Uruguayan? But half English, so it depends if you count him as foreign or not. Probably, that depends on your political inclination. Um, the what is the... That? it depends how you count Daddy Bagara. I think meant there's only one. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah, Vendloss was the first proper kind of the first proper foreign manager. And he was a doctor, and he was a doctor. But that was the side of it that I think Villa were attracted to, and Celtic fans. Well, obviously, he did much better. Would um may, may would maybe be able to to elucidate more. But he was more about the kind of he will bring in the sort of the, the cutting edge methods of fitness rather than he's got some big tactical idea. The, just, I think just, the, just telling 442 to run more. The, exactly. <laughs> the, the, the changes, I think, start well, In many with, ways, that's all you had. If everyone's playing 442, yeah, exactly. the only way to be better is to be fitter. Or to, to have to better players. Have better players or set pick or anything like that that can kind of make the difference because everything was much of a muchness. But yeah, there was no, tactic, there was no, there was no value in English football in, for a long time in, in having better ideas because mm. there was only one idea. And e- even predating 442, everyone played WM. And before that, everyone played the normally you know, the 235 type thing. That was, it's one of those things that I think speaks a lot about English football that even, even after WM, even after, I think, the switch to, to, four, to four at the back, teams were given in, on TV in the 70s, teams were given in 235. Yeah, I remember. Because that's, remember that's how. It. That's how teams were. Pres- that's what. That's what we did. The that, that the is che- one of the, the biggest single easiest ways of showing how yeah, English what, football fails to adapt quickly. 
The, Imagine how extra time in the in the Euro final might have been different if England had gone two three five in search of a winner, as opposed to five five five, five zero five, three one one. <laughs> the, um, but I think the change starts. Vendor obviously changes a lot of the 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 mentality of English football with a lot of the ideas about nutrition and science and stuff. I still think the change probably starts earlier than that with people like Hullet, and that 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 influx of of the great foreign players Hullet, Zola, Yonk. That I think. Sibon. <laughs> Sibon. That is, that is, I suspect, where ideas, where the ideas started to change that things were acceptable. I mean, teams were starting to play with three at the back in the, in the early 90s. I, I guess that must have been from, from seeing Germany win the World Cup and thinking, right, that's maybe something we could do. I think World Cups until. Because it was probably, on telly, right? Well, yeah, well, yeah but the, the cl- clubs will have gone. Clubs will have sent people to watch the World Cup. They'll have been. How much they were learning, I don't know. How much they were willing to learn, I don't know. Um, but I, there's been a big shift in international football. That the international football, you know, to go back to our fedora model of how football works. Interna- international football is very much now the coat stand sitting oh, off to the side God. because it's t- like the tactics in international football are totally different to club football. It's a t- it is effectively a different game. The same, you can't have a fully cogent press in international football. You don't, you don't you don't have enough time to work on it. So but I think twenty years ago, probably until about two thousand and two, it was it was World Cups that showcased the tactical evolution of the game. That doesn't apply anymore. It's the Champions League. That's where everyone gets their ideas from. It's what works in the Champions League. We'll go and do that. Um but domestic football is is now tossing its hat towards the coat stand and hoping oh, to hook it. <laughs> and, and more often than not, it just bounces off the wall and hits yeah, the floor. It hits the wall. There's an umbrella in the way or something. Yeah, exactly. The, oh, hang on a minute. Who's the umbrella? <laughs> uh, Danny Bergara. <laughs> so I think that, that, that what's changed now is that, that English clubs are much more plugged into that network of ideas. And they can take best practice almost as soon as it appears that that you need you need so, you need a figurehead like Guardiola or like Klopp to to showcase the change in the game to make pressing in this example the kind of the the de facto way that people do things. But a lot of the ideas would have been coming across from Germany long before Jurgen Klopp arrived. They'll have been that clubs would have been seeing enough of the Bundesliga. They'll have had enough emissaries, at enough training sessions to think actually, do you know what? That's a really good idea. Like when there was that whole rage about the football not. Remember the football naught? That machine that Dortmund and Hoffenheim have where it's like a cage and squares light oh, up. Oh, yeah, that's brilliant. Uh, yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. And there was a, this thing of this is the future of training, and it isn't. It's just a machine. It helps young players particularly, I guess, but it's not the future. You know, you can't not play football and just be like, right, you go and do 20 minutes in the football naught and get out on the field and win us the World Cup. <laughs> the, the, the football naught was something that the octonauts had come up with. For, uh... <laughs> One of those adventures into the deepest, darkest recesses of uh, the ocean. Or Alas, German no. football's brain. German football's brain. So it's it's a lot of the ideas were kind of coming across long before Klopp, Klopp appeared on English shores. But it's because England is plugged into the network and the money allows them to bring the ideas in from from abroad and maybe not perfect them, but I guess employ deploy them with better quality players. Maybe de- de- deploy them in a way that suits them as the most exceptional league in the world so as we mentioned right back at the beginning if it works here then it works yeah and if it works elsewhere and it doesn't work here then there's something wrong with it is it something of a surprise what we've been talking about then that we don't see or haven't seen more italian coaches in the premier league a majority of those that we we've seen have previously played in the premier league so have an association 
with clubs that you know Antonio Conte's time was was brief Maurizio Sarri as well even Carlo Ancelotti has, has come and gone quite quickly bearing in mind that the Premier League does seem to to be plugged in and to to, to bring in these innovations from elsewhere that we haven't seen more coaches come from the European country where where tactical innovation seems to be almost at its peak and that someone like Giampiero Gasparini, who's done a, a quite astonishing job at Atalanta, getting them into into the Champions League in successive seasons, isn't linked with, with big jobs in England, or at least mid, mid-ranking Premier League jobs, that he might be able to turn a, a Premier League, with his tactical insight, be able to turn a, a Premier League side that's just sitting outside the top six into into a contender for European football. I refer you to our first episode in this series where that question may well have already been answered, but it's an excellent question. I've forgotten already what we talked about. Yes, you have already, genuinely, in our lives two hours ago. Uh, Just a final point on this. Given that we've been speaking about Premier League exceptionalism and how how half of that, at least, if there is a negative half, that is self-generated to scratch one's own back, how would they feel about the idea that they are not the crucible in which Premier League, uh, in which tactical evolution takes place? Are they content with this label, given that it is based at least partly on a a tradition of England being very behind tactically? Are they happy with the the the, the inertia of that at least affecting how things are currently? Because they are, if they are to cherry pick the best, is that something they're content with? given that it associates them with a past of being not very good well, you'd, have to, you'd have to know how to build a Ferrari. Just go and buy one. And they're happy with that. They're happy with that. They're, they're happy with Seemingly the idea so. that they're not the mechanics. They're just the people with the wealth who, who come into the showroom We just, we just bring in the people that we need. I, don't, I, don't, I think they, their actions suggest they are. I don't know whether they would like to think of it that way. I think there, there, there's plenty of people within English football who want to be... And, in, and there are ways in which English football is more advanced than... Than other than other countries in terms of obviously there's a lot of commercial stuff and TV right stuff but in a purely footballing sense things like analytics are much more advanced here than they are in certainly in Italy or or Spain and probably France and Germany's maybe a bit more competitive but I suspect that the bulk of the good analytics work is is either in smaller countries like Holland and Denmark or it's in England and is um, that organically grown or has that been stolen for like from like the states for example I, th- I think it's been organically grown to an extent but it's inspired maybe by a cultural a cultural similarity with the states that there is a, a greater weight of American ownership that there are more that Americans are more drawn to the to the Premier League than the Premier League than um, than to, to other foreign, other other non non English speaking leads effectively um, that there's probably a, a quicker connection between England Britain and the states than there is between say Germany or Italy and the states um, but it's also to do with I think a desire to be a little bit more forward thinking and awareness that you want to be smart as smart as possible and probably to be fair after three episodes saying the exact opposite a a desire not just to be the rich rubes who have to buy everything you want to be able to spend your money as wisely as possible I think there is a there has been a bit of a shift in the last few years that there's enough clubs in England now who want to do things properly and want to make the best use of their their financial advantage that there is a desire to see to see how they can Make the market a bit more logical. I think that's probably right. So there are areas, but there are areas in which England is is much is much more advanced than other countries. Um, I, I don't think tactics is one of them. I think employing those tactics with the best players available is the difference. 
And, and it's interesting because we mentioned it last week um, in regards to Manchester City and how they want to be seen to be spending their money and, and not be the big foot stamping in on everything and just kind of laying waste to all around them because they've got more money. There, there is that wider sense as well, isn't there, as you just alluded to, Rory, that the Premier League is probably aware of the reputation they have of just having the most money mm. and that overshadowing everything. Like a large umbrella, for example, which is just sat adjacent to the coat stand, which has the, the man with the fedora hat on top of it. Ultimately, the, the clubs are the clubs are run. What a club is is different, but the clubs are run by by business people, and no business person likes being a sucker. And to an extent, the Premier League success is, to an extent, has been built on being the suckers, on unwillingly kind of absorbing that that reputation, living up to it. Of, right, well, yeah, you are. We know you're overcharging us, but we can afford it, so we'll pay it anyway. That's kind of how the Premier League's always approached it. I think there is a, there is a desire not to do that as much anymore. And uh, just to finish, I did mention at the beginning that we would uh, provide a coda, uh, which, as Roy says, might run a little counter to what we've been speaking about over the course of the last three episodes. But still, the, the Premier League is genuinely, because we all work within it, some of us for it, others commentate on it brilliantly, mm. some co-commentate on it brilliantly. brilliantly. Adequ- adequately. Adequately. <laughs> we, we, we do kind of love it. Um, and so for everything that we've been saying about the nuanced argument about exceptionalism, we, we do genuinely think it is or has exceptional elements to it that mean that we enjoy it almost constantly, almost incessantly. And as with 10 days to go until the new season, look forward to that in the same way each and every year because of our enthusiasm for what is an exceptional product. Is that fair? Or am I trying to um, paint a rainbow in the sky? I think there are... This is going to sound like damning without praise. I think, as a product, the Premier League is way in advance of anything else. I think if you if you take how it's presented on TV, how it's kind of how it's driven by its narrative, the things that it kind of produces, the the fan, you know, the presence of fans in stadiums in normal times, the, the stadiums themselves, the way the broadcasts are structured, the way that it's it's filmed, is all is made. It is a better package than anything else. We've said this a million times before, but you watch an Italian game. And there might be 50,000 people in the, in the Stadio Diego Armando Maradona, but you can't see any of them because they, they all sit in the top tier, which means that when there's a goal scored, it's like there's loads of ghosts going away and celebratory ghosts. And, and one I, of them being Diego Armando Maradona. No himself, doubt. yeah, no doubt. I can't wait the, for uh, Napoli's first home game of next season in the new way. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we all know Diego Armando Maradona could celebrate a goal. Oh no! Look, come on. Maradona is the is like the human manifestation of the spirit of way. <laughs> yeah, because the, that, that is very Argentinian inflected way. I thought that was the, Jimmy Five Bellies. The as a product, the Premier League is far in advance of anything else. But but its main its main advantage or its main kind of selling point is that it is that the money has enabled it to buy the best of everything. So there was a time when English. I was saying this in the build up to the Euros final that. Like you look back on all those like root and branch reviews of why don't England win tournaments, and yet at no point until the early two thousands, because of a Frenchman, did anyone think maybe after training we shouldn't do loads of drinking. Do you know what I mean? Like literally, they spent all that time being like, "Where are we going wrong tactically? Maybe don't go straight from training to the pub. Maybe that's all it is. There's a reason you're getting outplayed." And a lot of a lot of this was really low hanging fruit because English football culture was so backward for so long, but. The Premier League has been able to kind of acquire the best of everything, whether that's managers or players or or ideas, 
it is now in in that sense a global lead that it it reflects where football is almost as well as the Champions League. And and it, it, when you love football as we do, it's only human nature that you would analyse in the greatest detail the version of it that you are most exposed to and that's exactly what we've done with the Premier League over the course of the three weeks just because we might try and try and find areas of possible improvement doesn't think that we doesn't mean we don't think incredibly highly of it Mm -hmm. Uh, Stephen if that was the end of the essay it would have the immortal words in conclusion comma just prior to it Um, it is a time for never mind Jack and Ori what a soccer story this is when Andy yes Andy this time tells us a tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behaviour and libel where the details are moved yeah, a story from back in June, which really uh, is probably a nod to the popularity, amazingly, of the pod, and how I thought I disassociated myself with Super Dry, but sadly not. Uh, it's it's June. It's my sixth wedding anniversary. So Nicola, my wife, and myself travel down to London to celebrate big time. And to celebrate big time, we go to Bentley's in Soho, which is a tremendous fish restaurant. It's not as good as Big Place, Little Place, or Big Fish, Little Fish. But it's a, it's a decent restaurant, has a good reputation. Corrigan is not a bad chef. So we, we head down there, and clearly there's, there's going to be excitement because a, a superstar is in the house. And I, it's a hot day, so I have shorts on. I'm, I'm dressed relatively down. Uh, I'm shown to what I'm told is one of the best tables in the restaurant, but it was alarmingly close to the lavatories. So I, I don't know... I don't know what happened there. They know but about Aaron, incontinence. Yes. Aaron, the maitre d', was, uh, was an Arsenal fan, and we had a, a damn good chat about soccer. But uh, there's kind of, in Bentleys, there's kind of, there, there's tables. There's different levels, like a restaurant upstairs and stuff. But there's kind of the lower level, there's tables. And then there's like a bar, the oyster bar, which people sit at to eat mainly oysters. So as I arrive and sit down on this, this lower level table, it's the, the, the celebrity's table is where, you know, your Hoffman, your cruises sit. So I'm, I'm sitting there and there's a, a couple at the bar who are clearly looking over, you know, nudging each other, saying, I'm putting words in their mouth. It's him. It's him. And uh, they're very excited. You know, when people look at you for long periods of time, and you can see them doing it, but you, you don't want to. It's kind of weird. You don't want to look over and smile at them because then you're acknowledging that you're, you are a, a mega celebrity. But there came a point where I had to do that. And he kind of waved at me, this chap, and his girlfriend was very excitable. So he, he of course, eventually has to come over to speak to me. And he uh, amazingly said he listens to all the pod episodes. And I said, really? <laughs> and then I realized that Rory's on them. So that's why he listens to them. But he was, he was called Chris and he was from, from Brighton. So we start chatting away, and uh, I, I do this with a lot of people that I meet. They clearly know who I am because of the face. Uh, I said, how did, you, <laughs> how did you know it was me? How did you know it was me? And he said, well, it's pretty obvious, wasn't it, with the, uh, with the super dry? And I kind of looked down at myself, and I said, but I'm not wearing any, because I had a very a high fashion, very expensive T-shirt on. I won't mention the brand, but it's, it's, it's top end. And I said, yeah, but I'm not wearing any. And he, he said, well, what's on the back of your chair? And I'd realized that my hoodie was super dry. And he said that's what tipped him off. He thought as soon as he saw super dry, it's very rare you see super dry in Bentleys. As soon as he saw it, he knew. And that was his instant association. Super dry, Hinchcliffe. And then I think it was a compliment. As he left, shook me firmly by the hand. No, he fist bumped. And he said, you are a funny guy. And I, I said, as he, as he left, I said, that is a compliment, isn't it? And he just, just walked away. Trailed up into, but the- again, a first person. One of I can't remember how many people I've met 
that actually that I don't know that listen to the pod. But there's one. So actually our power or your power is is filtering down past the junction of the M6 and M1 all the way down to to Brighton. But apparently I am a funny guy, but I, I don't think he meant it in that way. Mm. Mm. What do you think? Funny looking. Didn't say. He might have said it very quietly. Under funny odd. Funny odd, yeah. not funny. Uh-huh. I was going to say, laughing with me or at me. And, and again, he didn't answer. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. We will get to them should you have sent any in the last three weeks. Uh, hopefully you have. Please keep them coming in and subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen, to Rory and to Andy and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Right, so it's the summer holidays now. Summer holidays for us, even though... You're already on the beach, Rory. People listen to this, it'll be the end of our summer holidays. That's true, actually, yeah. We, oh, we've created a sort of temporal illusion. Will, will, will the fog of your ignoring football clear in time for the new season? Mm. Should we do a little quiz? Rory, who is the manager of Fulham? It's a good question. <laughs> who is the new manager? Scott Parker's left. Who is the new manager of Fulham? You'll kick yourself. Who is the new manager of Sheffield United? Slavisa Jutanovic. Jutanovic. Who is the new manager at West Bromwich Albion? Uh, Valerian Ismail. So who is the head coach at Fulham? You don't Come know? on. Come on. He, former he fits, former he, Premier League coach. Yes, he fits our discussion rather beautifully. Uh, Portuguese? Carlos Carvalhal? Oh, Marco no. Silva, Marco Silva. Yeah, you go. see, so you're not completely lost it, have you? Just, just mainly. <laughs> this is significantly. We'll do a quiz uh, upon our return to. And yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. For Rory. Yeah. Uh, we'll see how much he's forgotten, um, and some of those quiz questions will be Marco Silva. Don't let Chinch curate the quiz, or it'll <laughs> all be championship related. I know. There's been a lot of managerial changes. Who cares? <laughs> Hold on, I've got to go and take a delivery.